So unexpected Christmas. We started week one talking about the unexpected family of Jesus and just kind of the surprises we found in the, the family tree of Jesus and some of the things that we could learn from that. Um, like our family of origin does not determine our future or that God finishes what, what he starts or that what society says about you is not what God says about you. And then uh, last week, Leanne and Gail brought us the, the message on unexpected mom and we, we heard the story of Mary and Elizabeth, uh, two moms that had miraculous um, births and just the, the humble obedience that, with which they responded to, to the call of God in their lives. So this morning, to get us started, I want to tell you a story. A few weeks ago, I shared with you uh, the story of my almost engagement, right? I, was, I dated a girl throughout most of college, and I was getting ready to propose to her, and um, she said, yeah, I want to be married, just not to you. That was, that was how that went. Um, so we kind of broke up and parted ways. That was my senior year in college, and um, it, was, it was devastating. So I played, I played college football, and it was my senior year. That kind of happened, I don't know, middle of October-ish. Had another four or five weeks of the season, and I was kind of looking at the future and realizing that my closest friends, the guys who I had just spent the last four years with, literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We were all going to go our separate ways, and I was no longer going to be a football player. It had been, that was my identity. Um, so much so that it actually, it kept me from God for a while, because the folks who were in the, you know, sharing Jesus with me, they asked me a question. They said, um, what is there in your life that if Jesus asked for it, you wouldn't give it to him? And I didn't, I just didn't even have to stop and think, just without missing a beat. It's like, football. I'm like, if this guy is going to ask for football from me, then I, we're, we're going to go our own ways. Um, but Jesus uh, did, not, did not give up on me. It just, that's how much a part of who I was, football was. So last game of the season, um, first play of the last game, I played defensive line. That means I'm one of the guys on the ground, my hands and feet on the ground. Um, the ball is snapped. I get hit by two guys at the same time. One guy hits me up here. Another guy hits me down here. And I hear and I feel something pop in my right leg. Um, and that was it. My football career was over three hours before it was supposed to be. My le- I broke my leg. The, what's the outside bone called? Is that the fibula, tibia? Whatever that outside one is, I broke that. Um, and I had watched, you know, I watched my best friends finish um, finish our, their career with me not on the field. That, coupled with the breakup, coupled with college coming to an end, I, like, I fell to pieces. So next week was Thanksgiving, and I, uh, I'm home for Thanksgiving, having a huge old pity party. I'm sitting on my mom's couch, just watching, watching bad TV, and, uh, and the doorbell rings. And it's, it's my best friend, the guy that I grew up with, the guy who was the best man in my wedding. I was with him, actually, last night. We were at his house. Um, and he just, he wanted to stop by and check on me, make sure I was all right, see if he could get me out of the house, cheer me up a little bit. Uh, I didn't want to go anywhere. So we just, you know, we sat and we, and we caught up after being away for, for a semester. And it, I, I've started feeling better, right? He was, I was, my spirits were lifted. We were having fun, just joking around. And then the doorbell rings again. And I was like, oh, cool. I wonder who this is. Um, it was the girl that ripped my heart out a few weeks earlier and tap danced on it. Um, <laughs> 
she just, she showed up, she heard about my injury and she wanted to, she wanted to check on me. So I was like, I said, in the TV room on the couch, Jerry went and answered the door and leads Shannon back to where, to where I'm sitting. And he's not, not wearing a watch. He said, oh, Tom, uh, Shannon's here. And he says, um, I gotta go, I got a thing. And he left. <laughs> he like, he completely, he abandoned me. I was like, dude. Um, but so Shannon stayed for, you know, maybe three or four minutes and just checked on me, wanted to make sure I was all right, see how I was doing. Because she knew how much a part of me that football was and the way that things came to an end. Um, but they both, they both showed up unannounced, unexpected at my house uh, to check on me. They wanted to see, they, want, they were there for me, right? So the high points of our life, the big successes, the celebrations, and the hard parts of our life, the, the tragedies and the, and the sadness, the people who care about us, who want to know more about us, um, whether it's convenient for them or uh, awkward. I'm sure that couldn't have been easy for, for Shannon to show up and to check on me after the, all that relational stuff, um, or even appropriate, as we'll talk about in a minute. But the, So there were unexpected guests at the first Christmas, right? The Magi, the wise men, the kings, nobody expected them to show up to welcome Jesus. The shepherds, nobody expected shepherds to show up. They, they were strangers. They didn't even know this little kid. The, the family, they just showed up. Completely, completely unexpected. The unexpected guests at the birth of Jesus, they are, they represent an invitation to all of us. They, they represent, like for those of us who already know Jesus, they represent an invitation to, for us to join him in his work of glorifying God and growing his kingdom. And for those of us who don't know Jesus yet, it is a arms wide open invitation to the family of God. And we're gonna, as we dig into the shepherds and the magi, I hope you'll, you'll begin to see how this, this idea of invitation, God's invitation, um, an invitation is really nothing without a response. So that's what I want you to, I want you to keep that thought, that idea of responding in mind as we move through this. Uh, let's take a look. We're going we're gonna to read some scripture here. This is... Um, I believe this is from Luke chapter 2. And I'm just I'm going to read a piece of it and then talk about it, read a piece of it, and then we'll read the story of the Magi. I'll do the same thing, and then I'll give you kind of some concluding thoughts. Uh, there were shepherds, shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. So there's some disagreement, debate around the shepherds, right? Some people suggest that these guys were basically on work release. They were not to be trusted, they were dirty, they were despised, they were just, they, that's why they were shepherds. They were out in the field with animals because they shouldn't be around people. On the other hand, there are people who suggest that's not true at all. These guys were just hardworking, blue-collar guys who got stuck working the graveyard shift. Regardless of kind of what their societal position might have been at the time, the original audience, right, when we look at Scripture, one of the things that we should try to do is get inside the heads of the original audience. When the original audience heard shepherd, they would have thought of the heroes of the Old Testament and of God himself. It would have been an overwhelmingly positive image 
of, of shepherds showing up to, to, um, to greet Jesus. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. An angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds, right? It was God's initiative. God went out and found these guys out in a field. They weren't very far from where Jesus was actually being born, but it was God, right? As we learned last week from Leanne and Gail, it's God's story. It rests on his shoulders. It's his initiative. The angel of the Lord showed up and tapped these guys on the shoulders and said, hey, hey, I got something to tell you. And what he told them was great news that was to be joy for all people. That the Messiah, who had been promised centuries before to their ancestors, was being born. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God. We'll get to the same part in a second. Um, so we're talking about this idea of invitation, right? The angel shows up, says, hey, the Savior is born. Here's a sign, right? Invitation, directions to the party. It's on God's shoulders. God is, God's going to start something, and he's going to make sure it happens. A heavenly host an angel showing up out of the blue is, you know, okay, that's a, that's a big deal. Not just one angel. The heavenly host shows up. This is an army of angels. And I don't, I don't really think that this was like the hallelujah chorus. This, I get the idea that this was more like a martial fight song that was trying to get the attention of these guys who were working hard out in the field. And they said, glory to God in the highest, in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They just did it. God did a work in their lives, and they responded. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. They did it. God did a work in their lives. God appeared to them, showed up in their lives, got their attention, and then they told other people about what had happened. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they heard, had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. So remember, Scripture had prophesied, had predicted all of these things about the birth of Jesus, and yet they were still coming to the original audience as unexpected. Just like an interesting side note, it says, what all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. This kind of leads people to believe that the shepherds weren't these bad guys that everybody distrusted and, and just thought they should be out with animals because it didn't say they were amazed at the fact that it was shepherds bringing them the message. They were amazed at the message itself, right? This is like amazing, amazing news. Hundreds and hundreds of years, and now the Savior is born. Angels said, gave them news, gave them directions. They went, they did it, they told people about it. And then ultimately their response was glorifying and praising God. 
All right. So that was like quick down and dirty on the, the shepherds. We're going to take a look at the magi now, and then we're going to try and draw some conclusions from the combination of the, um, those two different groups of guys. This is Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Okay, so even in that, just that first verse, Jesus was born at Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. The Old Testament prophets predicted Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. They predicted that he would be of the line of Judah, and they predicted when he would be born, that he would be born before the destruction of the, the, the second temple, which didn't happen until 70 AD. We're in the ballpark of like 4, 5, 6 BC right now. The Magi. Right? So sometimes in Christian tradition, these guys get called kings, they get called wise men. The Magi were a, a uh, they were priests. They were from a priestly caste of Babylonian or Persian descent, from, from what scholars tell us. They were, um, they were very gifted men. They were incredibly smart the Magi came up with something, and if you are math people, you will recognize this. This is completely foreign to me. Um, they came up with something called the trapezoid process, which is apparently is like part of, a big part of calculus, long before um, anybody else did. They were astronomers and astrologers, so they spent a lot of time studying the sky and charting the movements of, of celestial bodies. And then they would make predictions based on what they saw, what they saw in the in the sky. They we think they were part of a religion called, I'm gonna screw this up, Zoroastrianism. Right? They did not worship the God of the Bible. They um, they practiced magic and they were probably eight, nine hundred miles away. So that's who uh, that's who the, the Magi were, as best as we can tell from a historical standpoint. Um, they came from the east to Jerusalem. So what, when they looked, they saw this star, and they came looking for a king. Where else would they go to look for the king but the capital city? They come to Jerusalem, but in true Jesus fashion, Jesus was not in the capital city. He was in a little backwater town, because that's where that's the kind of environment where he would spend his life and his ministry, right? Jesus went to the people who were far away. He went to the outcasts. He went to the people that he should not have gone to. So it's only natural. The, the uh, author is letting us know he's setting up for us this idea that Jesus is going to do things differently and he's going to go to different people with this message that he has. So before they came, the Magi came looking, they came to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. But even before they were actually physically there looking for him, they were trying to find him in the stars. They, they were compelled, they were watching the things that were going on. Right. So I'm not... I don't believe in astrology. I'm not a proponent of astrology. I 
astronomy is a science, I, they, you know, the charts that they had were very accurate and they could predict a lot of things based on the, the movement of, um, of the celestial bodies. But what I do think happened is that God reached out to them and met them where they were at. That if he needed to do something supernatural in the sky to get the attention of these magi from 900 miles away who worship foreign gods, then that's what, then that's what, he, would, that's what he would do. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. All right, so Herod was a bad dude with bad intentions. This guy had his wife and two sons killed because he was worried they were going to try to steal his throne. He ended up having every male child under the age of two killed to try to eliminate whoever this Messiah might be because he couldn't identify them. This guy was just bad, bad news. He was set on his own agenda, his power, and, and his pleasure. The Magi, these priests from a foreign religion, show up, and they say, hey, your Savior's born. They're telling the people of, of Israel that their Savior's born. The people who should have known better didn't. Right, the, the chief priests and teachers of the law, Herod went to them and said, hey, what, what's up with this, this Messiah thing? Herod's the king. He should, be, he should be in on this. These chief priests and teachers of the law, like you would think if anybody was going to be on top of when Jesus was going to show up, it would be them, but it wasn't. They were too busy chasing after their own interests. And then we stop and think about that, like how often do we miss the work of God in our lives because we're chasing after things for, for us and rather than keeping our eyes fixed on, on him. In reply, they're telling him the answer to his question. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd, shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go to and worship him. He did not want to go worship the child. He wanted to go kill the child. Let's just be really clear about that. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was called. Right? Again, what God starts, he finishes. Whatever was going on in the sky, God worked it out so it would get their attention so they would know, they would know where to go. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We learned last week that Mary and Elizabeth responded with faithful humility. We learned that the shepherds responded with immediate obedience. They hurried off. The Magi responded with joy. They were joyful at what they had been told. They were joyful at what they had seen. And so what do you do when you, are encounter, when you encounter a king, royalty? You bow down and you worship him. And that's exactly what they did. Even though 
Like this, this, is, this is foreign to them, right? They just knew that something special was happening and that this child was, need, they needed to pay attention to him. And when they got there and they saw it, all they could do was fall down and, and worship him. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Herod was going to do these guys in as well. Herod was not a nice guy. Okay. Shepherds, magi, strangers. Like at the, at the birth, right? At the birth of your, your children, our children, our family shows up, our friends show up, maybe some coworkers send a fruit basket. Like people who know us. These were strangers. They were completely, completely unexpected that God invited in, into his story. And I, I felt it important to give you the historical context and to let you know a little bit about who these people were. But I, I think even more important for us is the, the fact that God sovereignly chose shepherds and magi, right? Sometimes... Um, the Magi are referred to as kings. And the reason that is, is because um, they were often advisors to royalty, advisors to kings, and they were made part of, of royal courts. And sometimes they were even made to be royalty themselves because of their abilities and the trust in which the, the ruling monarch placed in them. In the, in the, book, um, the Old Testament, Daniel the original language calls him chief of the Magi. He was faithful to the God of the Bible, but because of what he was able to do, the king put him in charge over all of his other quote-unquote wise men, and Daniel was treated like royalty. The Old Testament tells us that kings from the east will show up and they will worship Jesus. God sovereignly chose shepherds, and royalty, kings, so that we would begin to understand, that the original audience would begin to understand who Jesus is and how we are to respond to him. Jesus called himself the great shepherd. The Bible calls Jesus the king of kings. So we're going to take a look at those two ideas, right? Jesus is shepherd, Jesus is king, and what that should be tell us how that could instruct us and how we should respond, how we should respond to Jesus. Are we tracking here? That was a lot of history, like getting that history class nodding off. You guys with me? Let me stand up and do some calisthenics or something. I'll do it. All right, moving on. So Jesus as the great shepherd, he referred to himself as the great shepherd. Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David, God himself, all shepherds. Right? Psalm 23, maybe one of the most famous pieces of scripture in all the Bible, talks about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Overwhelmingly positive image of Jesus the Messiah as, as a shepherd. Shepherds in biblical times led their flock from the front. So if they approached danger, the shepherd would face it first. If there was tricky terrain, the shepherd would figure out how to get through the terrain first. The shepherd was way smarter than the sheep. So the shepherd knew where to find food and water. The shepherd knew where to find places to rest. And all the sheep had to do was to respond. Right? So the shepherd's job 
to break this down was to lead, protect, and feed. And the shepherd did that from the front. So he would kind of set the tone, show the way, give an example to be followed. In Jesus, we have the ultimate protection. In Jesus, we have protection from sin and death. When we come to the point where we look at Jesus and we acknowledge the fact that we just can't do it on our own, that we need him, that we need that forgiveness of sin, and we say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I want to do it your way. I'm tired of doing it my way. We get this protection from sin, right? The wages of sin is death. That's pretty much the ultimate protection. And we're told that we get to spend eternity with him in heaven. But that eternity starts here and now. So that would be like enough, right? Life and eternity, great. Not only that, Jesus gives us a a guarantee. The Bible calls it a deposit on this eternal life with him. Eternal life starts here and now. When we come into relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and resides inside each one of us. The Holy Spirit was sent to guide, counsel, comfort, correct, convict. Any sort of advice or counsel or support that we could need to navigate the waters of this broken world is provided for us in the person of the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe that comes to reside within side of us, ultimate protection. Jesus talks about two different ways that he looks at food. One is the Bible, and two is the will of God. When Jesus was drawn into the desert to be tempted, his reply was what? He said, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is Jesus on a page. The Bible is living and active. The, folks, I, I don't know how to, um, how, how to express uh, the importance. I mean, it just seems so obvious, right? I'm a pastor. I have to stand up here and tell you to read your Bibles. It's, it's, not, it's not that at all. You got, like, when I tell you it's Jesus on a page, if you devote time to the reading of Scripture and you, you give it some work, yes, it can be difficult to understand. But if you put some effort into it, I promise you the God of the universe is going to jump off of those pages and whatever, if you need a kick in the butt, he's going to kick in the butt. If you need a big hug, he's going to give you a big hug. But in the midst of the words on those pages that he will do that. And we are, of any generation throughout all of history, we have the least excuse. There have never been more copies of the Bible than there are right now in more forms. It's never been more accessible. Not only the sheer number of Bibles, but the tools around it, the resources around it. YouVersion, the Gospel Project, the Bible Project, all the different commentaries and studies, all available in the palm of your hot little hands. 
Man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Within the Bible, within the word of God, we find the will of God. And when I was younger, I used to get really stressed about this and really overcomplicate things. And I would worry, like, oh, man, I, you know, God's got a, God's will, God's plan for my life. If I, like, am I supposed to have Cheerios for breakfast or am I supposed to have Wheaties? Like, that's not how God's plan works, right? God's will for you is that you be in relationship with him, period. And you follow him with everything that you have. Jesus <clears throat> was asked, he said, they, they were off kind of, Jesus and his disciples were off like in a far off place. And he started talking about this food that he had to eat. And the disciples are like being disciples and they're looking at each other like, where, did somebody bring him lunch? Like, where did, where did he get food? He's like, I have food that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. That's God's will, right? What he gives us in his word to do, to do that. What he gives us in his word is his desire that we would be in relationship with him and a relationship that glorifies him and grows his kingdom. So how, how, did, how, did, the, how did the shepherds respond to the great shepherd? Immediate obedience. Right, the phrase that I highlighted was just, let's go, and they hurried off. They didn't stop and think about it. They didn't debate it. They didn't discuss it. Um, Francis Chan is kind of a, a famous pastor, and the, he tells us the story about this kind of thing where you just, you need to obey, to do. And he gave the example of his daughter and cleaning her room. And he said, <clears throat> if I ask my daughter to clean her room, I just expect her to go clean her room. I don't expect her to gather up a group of her friends and to sit down and say, well, what would it look like if I were to clean my room? What, were it, you know, what would it look like if I were to fold the laundry and vacuum? No, just clean your room. And when, when God shows up in our lives, he just wants us to respond. Right? If you want to get some counsel, fine. But don't be... Don't get paralyzed in, in, your, in your decision. So immediate obedience. Then they went and they told people. The shepherds went and told people about what they experienced. God's work in your life, whether it be a piece of scripture, whether it be somebody reaching out to you with a kind gesture or a financial resource or just a, a set of your circumstances that completely blows you away because the only way it could have happened is the God of the universe stepping in. When God does a work in your life, it is always, always, always an invitation for you to join him in his work by telling somebody about what just happened. I had a conversation with somebody in the lobby last week who um, felt led by God to do something, and they did it. And they were just completely thrilled and blown away because of the result of what they did, somebody else went and did something that was glorifying to God and grew his kingdom. And somebody else did something, it, there was like this ripple effect. God's work in your life is always an invitation to join him in his work. Last thing it says they did, they went on their way, they went back, right? They went back to their jobs, they went back to the fields. They didn't go and become pastors, they didn't go and become professional Christians, they went back to work. They went back to work glorifying and praising God. And that word glorifying can be a little bit 
difficult. Like, what is that? How do we do that in, in our everyday life? And I came across a definition this week that I found um, really quite helpful. And it says, to glorify something is to cause the thing or person to cause other people to acknowledge that person or that thing, to make manifest the, whatever that thing or that person is, right? So in, in really like brass tacks, practical terms, does the way, I'm sorry, I'm like shaking my phone at you guys, I'm like, <laughs> um, does the way that you live your life cause people to look at Jesus with longing? Does the way that you respond to the work of God in your life, does it cause a greater light to shine on Jesus? There's nothing we can add to Jesus to make him any better than he is. He's perfect. What we can do is draw attention to him in a positive way. Or, unfortunately, the flip side of that, does the way you live your life cause people to not want to look at Jesus. Right? Glorifying Jesus means drawing attention to him in a positive way. All right, so that's the shepherds, the magi, the wise men, the kings. So we think about this idea of king. It's almost impossible for us in 2018, United States of America, to, to get our brains around what it means to to follow, to be in a relationship with, with the king. Not even the president of the United States and all of his power is a king. The president is limited. He's limited by the checks and balances set up in the, in the Constitution. He has a term limit. He's only the ruler of one country. He's limited in his power. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king over every authority. Virginia, could you put up that Colossians verse, please? This is from Colossians chapter 1. For in him, him being Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Every ruler, power, authority that has ever existed or will exist is under Jesus, the king of kings. So how did the Magi, who we think could have been royalty themselves, how did they respond when they were in the presence of the King of Kings? They fell down and they worshipped. They submitted, right? That's the that um, that kneeling, that falling prostrate, is is a symbol of of submission. They submitted to little baby Jesus. Scary, smart guys who were valued and trusted advisors to kings, they came, possibly royalty themselves, they came and they fell down prostrate in front of little baby Jesus. They submitted to him. I want to draw you all the way back to the beginning of when I started with that story that I told about the question that was asked to me. When you think about submission, what is there in your life that if Jesus asked you for it, you would say, no, I'm out. 
Is it the idea of success? Whatever that might look like in your eyes. Is that money? Is that a, is that a corner office? Is that super successful kids? Here's the, here's the thing with, with Jesus, right? Jesus is love. He loves you, and he knows what's best for you way better than you could ever think or imagine. So if you can muster up the courage to respond to that question, two things will happen. Either, either one of two things will happen. Whatever that thing is, God will take it from you, and he will replace it with something better. Or he will bless it and give it back to you and make it better than it was. The only reason you answer that question with mine, 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 I'm not, I'm not giving it up, I'm not giving it up, is that if you think you know better than God, and trust me from experience, folks, I don't. Right? My personal experience is I don't know better than God. <clears throat> we are, we're in the process of walking this path as a family of, of um, some things that I never thought I would be asked to do. And it's giving up control of things that I thought, even from like a biblical perspective, that's my responsibility. Those are things that I have to do. God is like, nope. I got it. What is there in your life that if Jesus asked you for it, you wouldn't give it to him? Requires a response. An invitation requires a response. So the Magi showed up. They fell down. They submitted. They worshiped, right? They lived. From what we know, they went on their way. We don't know anything else about them, right? But worship means living in response to God. And they gave him gifts. Famously, they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave him gifts fitting a king. For us, what that means, gifts fitting the king of kings, it means that we give sacrificially. Time, talent, money, resources, energy, you don't give what's left over at the end of the day. You don't give what, you know, if you have some energy left, you, you go do something. You don't wait to the end of the month to see if there's anything left in the checking account. You, you give sacrificially. That does two things. It tells Jesus that he's more important than anything else, and it tells Jesus that you are with him because you are trying to follow his example. Jesus gave everything. He gave his life. You cannot get more sacrificial than that. That, by definition, is sacrifice. By giving sacrificially, you tell Jesus he's more important than anything and everything, and you tell him that you're with him by following his example. The unexpected guests at the birth of Jesus are an invitation. How are you going to respond to that invitation? 
right? Without your response, the invitation is nothing. The God of the universe who gave up all the trappings of heaven, right? This is, this is Jesus who sat on a throne and who was worshipped by angels who were given extra sets of wings because of who Jesus was. They had a set of wings to cover their eyes, they had a set of wings to cover their feet, and they had a set of wings to fly. And they just circled around the throne, praising God and worshiping God. That was their response to the King of Kings. What's your response gonna be? Right, if you are here and you know Jesus this morning, you already know him, Jesus is inviting you to join him in his work. If you're here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is, it's an invitation to the family of God.